let me say this. Happy Father's Day to you. Um, it's a it's a rainy Sunday, so your your tea time was rained out, or your uh, your your fishing day. I don't know. Can you get rained out of fishing? I, I, yeah, you can. Okay, so you were rained out of fish. So, anyways, you're here, and I am so glad that you're here. I mean, so on Mother's Day, we um, encourage moms, and moms, particularly young moms, often feel very overwhelmed at the task that they have in front of them. And I would say that. Dads, it is very easy um, for us to feel very inadequate um, and have our eyes on all the wrong things during the week. We, we are all trying so hard the way we're wired to, to be somebody, to do something, to make our mark, to be important. And I just want to encourage you this morning uh, that you already are. And um, you have little ones or, or medium ones or big ones or whatever it is, and they're and they're watching you. And I just want to encourage you uh, that the Lord has designed this deal for them to watch you. And so um, I hope this morning you'll be encouraged, although we're not talking about Father's Day at all um, after this. But in fact, what we are talking about is actually ironic. But anyways, uh, we'll uh, go from there. But anyways, happy Father's Day. I'm glad you're here. Um, it typically is the lowest attended Sunday of the year. So we're going for that already today. A lot of seats up front. All right, so let's do this. Let's pray, and then I want to get into um, an attribute of God this morning, and I'll, I'll uh, tell you what it is. Father, uh, we thank you for the morning that we have. I thank you for the rain. I thank you for the cool weather. Um, Father, I thank you for the roof over our head this morning and that we've been able to gather and freedom to study your word. And so, Father, I pray that the comfort that we're surrounded with um, would not in any way be a distraction to what your Spirit wants to do through what you have revealed and inspired and uh, delivered to us for this morning. And so we trust that your word will not return void. We pray this the only way we can, and that's in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. All right, so um, I'll start it this way. A business was opening a new store, and a friend of the owner of the new store sent flowers for the occasion. And the flowers, they arrived at the new business, and the owner read the card, and it, and it said, rest in peace. So the angry owner called the florist, florist to complain, and he, after he told the florist of the obvious mistake and how angry he was, I mean, you know, it was his brand new business, and, you know, he was sent, you know, rest in peace. The florist said, sir, I, I am really sorry for the mistake, but rather than get angry, you should imagine this. Somewhere there's a funeral taking place, and they have flowers with a note that says, congratulations on your new location. Well, it kind of sets up the morning. We've been talking about the attributes of God for the past several weeks, and uh, I want to continue in that vein this morning. Actually, this morning and next week, kind of, uh, they go together. And this morning, though, um, we're going to consider an attribute that um, doesn't usually come to mind when we think about the attributes of God. But if you go back into the church history and you go back and look at preachers and teachers throughout the, uh, the, the, the history of the church, you almost always find this listed among the attributes of God. And so, you know, I said in the very beginning, there's not a list in the Bible that gives us the attributes of God. But as we read the Bible, God has revealed um, these things about himself. And so we can say about God that he's holy and that he's faithful and that he's loving and that he's good and that he's wise and that he's sovereign because God is revealing those things about himself. Sixty-six books of the God of creation and salvation and judgment revealing himself. And so the attribute I want to consider this morning is the attribute of the wrath of God. And it so let me say this, it has no um, 
relationship to uh, Father's Day. And in, in fact, really, guys, I'm doing you a favor. So now you can always say, you know, yeah, well, you know, I went to church on Father's Day and heard the hell sermon. So that should count for something, right? Trust me, I'm going to use it in my house, all right? Uh, but here's, here's when we talk about the wrath of God, there's a lot of things that you could talk about, but I specifically want to talk about how the wrath of God finds its fulfillment with regard to hell. Um, next week, we're going to consider uh, the attribute of God's goodness and blessing and how it finds its you know, specific fulfillment in the doctrine of heaven. So maybe like a two-part series here in the midst of the you know, the things to come, hell and, and heaven. So briefly, here's what I want to do. Um, it is not a doctrine we talk about uh, very often, or, or let me say this, it's not a doctrine we want to talk about very often, but it's, it's one that is important um, for our biblical understanding about who God is. And so briefly, I want to talk an overview about what it is when we talk about hell, what's the big picture, what does the Bible say about it, I'll do that briefly. Then, I quickly want to look at two passages this morning. I'm going to be in Revelation chapter 14, and I'm going to be in Luke chapter 16. I hope I, we get to both of those. Um, if I bail on one of them, it'll likely be Revelation 14, but, um, uh, but those are, that's my intention. Um, and then, I want to remind us this morning, what is God's answer um, about hell. So if we were to ask him about it, what would his answer be? So to the doctrine of hell. Um, we begin, if you, to begin the doctrine of hell, you have to talk about the wrath of God, and that is what we said in attribute. One of my favorite books, uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. If somebody ever asks me for a book recommendation, say, hey, you know, what should I read? And, you know, besides the Bible... Um, this is the book I always recommend, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. I try to read it every year. You know, I feel like I'm always kind of reading it. It is, um, it, is, it is 22 chapters on the person and the work of God, and it is beautiful. And if you don't have it, it's a, you know, happy Father's Day. You know, go, go buy it for yourself. All right, so one of the things that catches people by surprise, though, when they read it is chapter 15. Because chapter 15 is entitled, The Wrath of God. He begins uh, that chapter this way. He says, Wrath is an old English word defined in my dictionary as deep, intense anger and indignation. Anger is defined as stirring of resentful displeasure and strong antagonism by a sense of injury or, or insult. Indignation as a righteous anger aroused by injustice and baseness, such as wrath. And wrath, the Bible tells us, is an attribute of God. He goes on. The modern habit throughout the Christian church is to uh, play this subject down. The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society, and Christians, by and large, have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. We may well ask whether this is as it should be, for the Bible behaves very differently. One cannot imagine that talk of divine judgment was ever very popular, yet the biblical writers engage in it constantly. One of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both Testaments emphasize the reality and terror of God's wrath. He says, a study of the concordance will show you there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. It is a subject we must talk about to fully understand God. In Christianity, God's both love and justice. And the struggle that most people have with this is how can a loving God uh, be a judging God? You know, how, how can a God of love also be a God filled with wrath and anger? If, if he's loving and he's perfect, he should forgive and accept everybody. He shouldn't be angry. That's kind of how it goes. Yet here's the reality. 
all people who are loving, all people who are loving, are, are sometimes filled with wrath, not despite their love, but because of their love. If you see a person and you see them ruining themselves or somebody, um, uh, 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 you know, some injustice towards them, you get angry. That is the right response. Rebecca Manley Pippert says it this way. She says, think how you feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. It's a great quote. The Bible says God's love, or God's wrath, flows from his love. It flows from his delight in you, his delight in creation, and his wrath and his anger arise because of the injustice that's being done to it. But Psalm 145, the, the Lord's righteous in all his ways and kind or, or loving in all of his works. The Lord's near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cries and saves them. And listen to this. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. And God promises that there will be a judgment day, a day, a, a, a judgment day when his wrath is revealed in full. He promises that. And so Peter, in his second letter, he talks about it this way. He begins in chapter 3, he talks about there's, there's a day coming and it's the judgment day. And then Peter says, listen, the Old Testament predicted it. Um, Jesus taught us about it. The apostles, they've written to us about it. And while there are people who even now, they scoff at the idea, they say things like, oh yeah? Where is this promised judgment upon the wicked? Where is this that you, that you talk about? And then Peter warns. He says, well, be careful. Because with a word, at creation, God separated the waters and he made dry land and he created life. And with a word, he unleashed waters from the sky and flooded the entire earth as judgment upon the wicked. And that's nothing compared to what is to come. In fact, he says it this way, but by the same word, the heavens and earths, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as come some count slowness, but it's patience toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And Peter's referencing the last day and the last judgment and the last destination for the wicked. Well, the wrath leads us to talk about the final expression of God's wrath, and that's going to be hell. And nobody likes to talk about hell. In fact, nobody really wants to believe that there is a hell, particularly today. But it is interesting, and you can see different polls, and, 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 but one, one popular poll done by Barna will, says that a large majority of Americans believe in the existence of hell, However, the same poll shows almost no one likes to think he or she's going there. Everybody's hoping for heaven. Now, quick overview of, of what the Bible says about hell. Here's just a couple of passages. We could go to lots of passages. I'm going to give you four uh, qu quick 
passages, all right? And these are all from what Jesus had to say. Matthew chapter 13. It's the parable of the wheat and tares. It says, The Son of Man will send His angels, and they'll gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says in Mark 10, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Mark chapter 9. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell. Well, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Staggering, these, these statements about hell. I give you one more. It is Revelation chapter 20. John, I think I have this one up on the, on the uh, screen. It says, it's the end, it's the judgment, it's, it's after, uh, it, it, we're, it's the day. It's the day the Bible has been talking about from the beginning. It says, then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they'd done. Then... Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. <clears throat> the revelation there talks about two books. One set of books are the, all the things you've done. The other set of the other book is the Lamb's Book of Life. If your name's written here. You hear, well done, good and faithful servant. If it is not written here, you are left to stand judgment with what you have done, and no one survives that judgment. They are cast eternally, consciously, into everlasting punishment, into a lake of fire. Let's talk about that for a second. Look, look, go back just a couple of, if you got your Bible open, go back just a couple of uh, chapters to Revelation chapter 14. I want to just look at this quickly, then we're going to go to Luke chapter 16. Are you still with me? You still with me? Wrath of God and hell. And I promise this ends on a good note, all right? So just hang with me, all right? My mom always says, listen, Ross, you've got to give them the rainbow and even in the midst of the rain, we'll have their rainbow at the end, all right? But I want you to be sufficiently shocked if this is not something you've thought about in a while. Because the Bible means to shock us. It means to stab us awake. And so I pray that we would be awake this morning. I'm in Revelation chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 6, and I, I really I just want you to see this, and I want to show you three things. This is a bit, um, Revelation 6 to 13, there are three angels that give uh, three sermons, if you will, okay? Here's what the first one says, uh, ver, uh, verse 6 of chapter 14. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel, an eternal gospel, a forever gospel. Okay, we're, we're a gospel-preaching church. We care a great deal about the gospel. The gospel is the good news of hope for all mankind. And here this angel, flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, 
And let me just say it this way. The role of the gospel being preached is the role of every one of us in here. This is the, this is the role of the church. If ever you look up in the sky and the angel is proclaiming the gospel, it's over. All right? That's the end. We're at the end. It's our role now until then. Eternal gospel to proclaim those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. When we think of the gospel, we tend to think of, and, and we should, it is by grace through faith we are saved because of God's love for us. And we see here that part of the eternal gospel also includes fear God and give Him glory. Because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heavens and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Sermon number one. Sermon number two, verse eight. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. This is the world system. And it is, it is crumbling. It offered a wine and the world drank it. And yet it's, it's crumbling. Verse 9, here's the third one, third sermon of the angel. Another angel a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead or his hand, you know, so not only will he drink the, the wine that Babylon offered, he'll also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up, what does it say? Forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. It's a call for the saints to endure and then verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may find rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. There's three things about that. Hell is an eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. It is a death and torment that lasts forever. And so what this does is it excludes what I think are two very popular notions today. One of those is the notion of universalism. Universalism essentially says that eventually, at some point out in the great forever, there will be a second chance or a progress that everyone will be able to make towards heaven. But that is not what the Bible says. And the one thing, all universalists, even Christian universalists, if you want to call it that, agree upon that there is, that there, that this is what they would say, is that, that after death there will be another chance or, or maybe an endless string of chances to choose Jesus. And the universalism uh, uh, approach, I mean, it, it, it depends upon that. And so we should wrestle with all of the second chance passages in the Bible. But the problem is there aren't any of those passages. There's not anything that says that. No passage in the Bible says there will be a second chance after death to turn to Jesus. And that's frightening. It's frightening because the idea of after death conversion... It's the most important thing for a universalist and makes or breaks that view and yet the Bible no single passage even alludes or hints or hopes or suggests that that's possible. It's eternal punishment which leads you to say hell is forever. 
which eliminates the other hope, and that's nihilism. Universalism is one hope. Nihilism or um, a nihilism is the other, and that is that we just, the good, you know, the saved go to heaven, the, uh, the wicked just cease to exist. And yet the Bible does not teach that. Daniel 12, in Revelation 20, where we just looked at, there is, a, there is the resurrection of the dead, and everyone's resurrected, good, bad. And those that are righteous, those that are found in Christ, to, to eternal blessing, though, those who have rejected Christ, to eternal condemnation. You are, you are raised with a new body fit for eternity. And, third thing I would say, hell is eternal punishment, hell is forever, hell is conscious. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 16. I want, you, I want to look at this for a minute. There are a lot of places we could go. Um, Jesus here will tell a parable. <clears throat> we would want to be careful not to press every detail in the parable, and yet... There is a picture, there is a, a, a worldview or a heaven view, if we will, behind Jesus, but behind what he's speaking. He's, he's speaking from a body of knowledge about life after death. And so while he's not here trying to teach us all of those details, he is speaking from an infinite knowledge about it. And so there are things we can take from it. Look, look at what it says. I'm going to read it. We'll go back over it, and then we'll conclude. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. You got the picture. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Lazarus is introduced most stark contrast guy represents you know these two guys two two different ends of society um, one is uh, you know uh, clothed in um, uh, riches the other is clothed in sores and poverty and shame uh, but one is um, starving has nothing to eat the other uh, the, the other has more than enough one has no place to lay his head the others uh, and he's dropped off at the gate and maybe he's 
maybe he's uh, disabled and the other lives in a mansion. One's needs are meager. He'd settle for the scraps off the table. Not even desiring to be at the table. He's not even desiring luxury. It would be nothing for this man to let him have the scraps. That's what Lazarus desires. Garbage. Soiled bread. It had been used to clean the hands of the cook. They take bread and they use it to clean their hands and throw it off. He was, that's what he was wanting. And then he adds the bit about the dogs. And we want to look away. You know what Lazarus means? It means God is my help. That's what it means. So they die, and the comparison continues after their death, and it, everything seems reversed. Lazarus is carried by angels to Abraham's side, to, to, to his bosom, placed in his lap. The man, uh, he died in the company of filthy dogs, and he's taken to the place by angels to the place of uh, the, the company of Abraham. The rich man, he has a funeral. I'm sure it was super fancy and, you know, um, but death ends things for the rich man. Death brings things for Lazarus. It's possible Lazarus' body was maybe didn't even have a burial, would have been just discarded outside of the city on top of a heap. One goes to Hades. There he's tormented. The other goes to Abraham's bosom. One is looking down. The other is looking up. There is a distinction here. Their stations, their positions have been drastically reversed. And it has nothing to do with poverty being rewarded and riches being punished. It's not the deal. It's not if you're rich this morning, it is not a referendum against you. If you're poor this morning, it is not a promise for you. The issue is about where is their identity. One man is named. His, his name is Lazarus. It means God is my help. The other man is given no name. No identity beyond what his stuff is and what he's counting on. Lazarus, my God is my help. The rich man, my God is my riches. That's what I'm counting on. That, that's what identifies me. That's what makes me who I am. That's the issue. Say a note here about Hades. Um, it comes from the Greek word Sheol. It's, it's, it's the place of the dead. Um, there is torment there. It appears there's also bliss. The, new, the Old Testament is, uh, there's things that are ambiguous about it. It is not hell. Hades, we saw in Revelation 20, will actually be thrown into hell. It is the, 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 an intermediate state. The intermediate state has changed for believers at the resurrection of Jesus, where Paul will now say, Absent from the body, present with the Lord, Jesus. Hades, the, the tormented part of, of the, uh, the, the life after. Abraham's bosom, you might think about paradise. Jesus, today you'll, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the two sides. It's a place of consciousness of memory, of knowledge. The rich man is fully present. He's fully aware. The Bible, listen, the Bible does not teach soul sleep. You don't die and then take a long nap until the resurrection. That is not what happens. Your body sleeps. But your soul is very much alive and either in the presence of the Lord or in the absence of the Lord. There's no 
annihilation this continues to go on this is an intermediate state absent from the body present with the Lord we find out in Romans that we all groan we all await for the resurrection that, the, that our hope's not life after death it's life after life after death as Lindsay Wright says the blessed hope is the resurrection where soul is united with body and we live forever physically and that's glory eternity new bodies new heaven new earth the reality is everybody will get a new body it just depends where you spend that eternity <clears throat> back to the parable you get there he asks for water the irony is he requests mercy at the hand of Lazarus uh, um, although he never had given mercy to Lazarus and amazing he, he's not even humbled I mean you see this sense in which he's still trying to order Lazarus around Abraham you're my father tell that boy to bring me some water that's what he means there's no seeking of forgiveness there's only seeking to have his need met still clinging to his status still believing he can order things around and yet the man is in torment I'm in agony well uh, 27 through 29 if I can't have that then send him to my father's house for I have five brothers I've got a bunch of brothers they live just like I live they uh, all their uh, um, uh, hope is in themselves and, and what they have. You've got to send a, a warning to them. And essentially what he's saying about himself is, I didn't get a warning. Nobody told me. And here it is depicted that Abraham says to him, oh yeah, you did. Moses and the The Bible has been speaking about this from the beginning. So yeah, yeah, but that's not good enough. They sent somebody, there was somebody that was raised from the dead. He says, no. They didn't believe what was revealed. They didn't believe they didn't believe Moses and the prophets. They're not going to believe somebody that was raised from the dead. It's interesting that Jesus would say it that way. Well, there's this resurrection. The rich man wants Abraham to send back somebody from the dead he wants Lazarus to be resurrected so that he can go back but here's what's interesting you know in real life not parable there was a Lazarus who was raised from the dead and faith was not proclaimed in fact all they wanted to do was kill him Acts 17 the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom were Dionysus and Aragapo, a woman, and Demarius and others with them. Jesus has been raised from the dead according to scriptures. If we believe, if, if we do not believe the one whom God sent as raised from the dead, spoken to us in scripture, there is no hope for us. That's what the Bible says. We, we pass into Hades. We, we would pass into death. We would pass into the place of the unrighteous in judgment. We're waiting for the day that Hades coughs us up and we're thrown along with Hades into the lake of fire forever. So why would we talk about the doctrine 
of hell. Why does it matter? Here's how I would argue it. I would say that you cannot fully understand God's love without a doctrine of hell. If you don't understand hell, you don't understand the, uh, the, the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of God's love. And you don't understand the depth of your own depravity. If there's no hell, there's nothing amazing about grace. Will Farrell, great theologian, tweeted last year, not one for holding people responsible for tweets, but here, here you go. You might not hold him responsible. Um, Hell is for people that teach children that it actually exists. He retweeted 100,000 times. Do you know that nobody in all of Scripture talks about hell more than Jesus? Nobody. And it's by design. Listen, it's tough to accept. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, there's no doctrine to which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. says in the long run um, there are only two kinds of people one who say thy will be done and those to whom God says in the end thy will be done his point is that some people don't want to have a relationship with God they ultimately want it their own way forever and an unbeliever's wish to be away from God turns out to be their worst nightmare In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell itself is why I can't believe in that. I don't want to believe. Then one question to ask is, well, what are you asking God to do? Are you asking God to wipe out past sins at all costs, give a fresh start, something every uh, smoothing away, make, making over? covering over every difficulty and, and, and offering miraculous help. Is that, is that what you want him to do? To which we'd say he has done that. And he did it, did it at Calvary. He did it to forgive you. And yet there are those that will not be forgiven. They don't want forgiveness. One writer says, the damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end. And the doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Pictured as freely chosen. At the end of the parable, the rich man is convinced that if his brothers see someone rise from the dead, they'd turn from their sins. They'd, they'd repent. They'd, they'd say, you know, uh, uh, here the, the, the man knows sin, he knows his guilt, he understands the message, be warned and, and repent, but he, he himself won't do it. He won't do it. The rich man believes if somebody goes back from the dead, it'll be amazing enough to scare them straight. And what Abraham says, no. That kind of fear and sensationalism, and that's not what changes a heart. 
not what it's not what creates faith. Here it is. You've got to know Jesus this morning. Every week, let me let me let me make a promise to you that every week. I mean, so if you're here this morning, say, I don't even know why I wandered in here. I should have played golf in the rain, you know. Sounds better than hell. Every we're going to talk about this every week. If you're undecided, listen. What one? Have faith this morning. I, I I pray you would. You you can believe this morning. But if you don't believe this, come back every week. We will we will make the case that this is true. From what God has revealed. And trust that by His Spirit He will open your eyes to see that in the midst of His wrath and holiness against sin and wickedness, which is the only right response for a holy God, He deeply loves you. So much that He sent His Son to die in your place to take your death. The cup of wrath, the, the chapter 14 of Revelation talks about, Jesus talks about it the night before he goes to the cross. Says, Father, if there's any other way to do this than to drink your cup, and what he's talking about is the cup of wrath. Jesus drank that cup. He, the cup of wrath was poured out on him so it wouldn't have to be poured out on you. So what do you build your identity on? What, what are you looking for for meaning, for salvation? Are you trying to save yourself now? Or have you come to the place of knowing that you need a Savior. Isaiah, way back in Isaiah 52 and 53, he talks about the suffering servant, and it's Jesus, it's the Messiah to come, and he's come and he's going to pay the price for sin, and it says this, that it's the Lord, it was the Lord's will to crush him. We looked upon him and we were appalled. He was disfigured beyond human appearance, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. The Lord made him a guilt offering. But the results of his suffering, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus, I love you. I love you. And I died for you. So you could be in me. I took all that you were, so you could be all that I am. And know that eternal goodness and blessing of the Father that created you. That's what we'll talk about next week. And he did all of that for the joy it says that was set before him. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. And that joy enjoys you. Jesus took death, not just physical death, he took eternal death, so we don't have to be afraid of it anymore. I'll close with this. There's Donald Gray Barnhouse. I've told you this story before. He's a pastor in Philadelphia, great writer. Evidently, he was a great preacher. I never heard him preach. He'd gone to be with the Lord. And um, stories told about him driving with his wife and his He's driving his children to his wife's funeral, their mother's funeral. And he's grasping for words to try to comfort them. And on the way, there was a, <clears throat> a this truck that went by, and as the truck went by, the shadow of the truck uh, covered over their car. And he turned around and looked at his kids and he said something like, see that truck? 
Would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? And the youngest kid said, I'd rather be run over by the shadow of the truck, Daddy. Well, I just want you to realize something. This is going to be all right. It's going to be all right. You see, Jesus was hit by the truck. So your mom just has to go through the shadow. Jesus is run over by death. But because she believed in him, all she gets is the shadow. And it'll be okay. Do you know you realize that the hell is part of the good news? It's part of the everlasting gospel. Because without it, you don't know. You cannot comprehend the depth to which God loves you and what Jesus sacrificed for you. You were the joy set before him. Do you believe? I pray that you would. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, You've been gracious to us this morning. You are so clear in your word with the ways that you speak about the judgment to come. You use language that is plain. You also give us images and stories to which we can even better relate to. And all of this is for the purpose that in the midst of your wrath towards sin and wickedness, you want to display and highlight and make known your love for us. And so, Father, this morning, if there are those that do not believe, I, I pray that the conviction of their life and the fear of eternal punishment be enough to wake them up. Be enough to hear you, to be enough to see your son this morning. Not out of emotionalism or sensationalism, but Father, a real sober, honest look at what are they counting on to save themselves. And that by faith this morning, they would believe. They would believe your son Jesus, that you sent him to die in their place to be hit by the truck so that in this life we only know the shadow and for father for all of us would would we take the truth of what you have revealed about your wrath and the coming judgment and about the eternal destination for the wicked which is hell and father would you use that to help us see that the infinite and amazing and the matchless love that you have for us. That while we were still your enemies, you sent Christ to die for our sins. So, Father, we pray that in all of this we would worship you well in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.